Welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolow. You're listening to us on 88.3 WLIWFM, Long Island's only NPR station. And Alec, I'm really psyched about our guests today. Yeah, I know. This is really cool. This is like a, a bucket list moment. <laughs> we have Jules Pfeiffer and Jay-Z Holden on today. And Jules and, uh, and Jay-Z have, have been married for a short time, but together for a long time. And uh, Jules is Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoonist. He's the screenwriter responsible for movies like Carnal Knowledge. He's been inducted into the Comic Book Hall of Fame. And he is man about town on tap the dancer. East End. About, I'm a tap dancer. And a, You're a tap dancer. A tap dancer. Okay. <laughs> I would say, um, and I, I, I know it's almost a cliche, but truly a, an American treasure who happens to uh, have made his life on the East End of Long Island. Uh, or a big portion of his life. True. And uh, I always see Jules every year at, at Authors Night because he almost always has some new book to share. Or uh, I, I think he has a new one out this year, uh, a sequel to one of his children's books. But a few years ago, it was uh, The Ghost Scripts, I believe, which was about um, the oh. HUAC. I mean, some some really amazing stuff. So he, he, uh, go, he vacillates between doing stuff that is uh, smart, for children and, you know, satire and things that, you know, that we've always, he's always poked fun at whatever's going on. Yeah, well, and I would also say just having my own uh, energies, uh, I don't think you actually write for children. I think you write for young, uh, uh, you know, adults or young humans. Um, and, and if the writing uh, resonates, uh, it, it also gets embraced and, and enjoyed by uh, other demographics. And then we also have Jay-Z on, and I've known, uh, known Jay-Z for like a million years. She has been an editor and journalist out here and has also written a few plays, one of which was, I know, at Guildhall a few years ago, and she'll be talking about that, and, uh, and also really into kimonos. So we're going to get to that. <laughs> kimono dragons or kimono? Uh... Kimonos, not komodos. Anyway, you're listening to us. Uh, this is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. This is Sundays on the East End on WLIW 88.3 FM. You can also stream online at WLIW.org slash radio. And we're going to be right back with our guests after this. This is John Landis, your host for the Jam Session Radio Hour on 88.3 WLIW FM, Sunday nights at 8, bringing you the best in local live jazz. All recorded live right here at some great venues on the east end of Long Island. And please stay tuned to 88.3 WLIW-FM, also heard on WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station.
Welcome back to Sundays on the East End. Our guests today are Jules Pfeiffer and Jay-Z Holden. Welcome, guys. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I'm going to actually give the mic to Alec because he had some really interesting um, comments because, Jules, um, how do I say this? You're no spring chicken. So. I am of 112. No, you no. are not. You're 91. He said 91, almost to be 92 I'll, I'll be spring chicken. I'll be 92 in January. All right. So, so I'm, I'm going to dive right into uh, something that, that it may be into the deep end of the pool, you know, but, you know, you, you came of age in the depression and you know you lived through uh, the World War II, lived through the 50s McCarthyism, you know, you're, you're finding your, your voice as, as, a, as a writer and as a satirist and as an illustrator. Um, you, you know, then you get into the 60s, you get into Nixon and Watergate. Where are we now in your mind? I and, knew you were going there. Well, I just wanna know, like you've seen a lot and, and I would like to know a little of your wisdom. Like, what's your perspective right now? My perspective and my wisdom uh, can um, comes down to one word: help. This <laughs> <laughs> oh. is uh, I'm going to be 92 in January. This is the, and I I lived through the Great Depression um, and McCarthy, all that stuff, the blacklist and all of that. Uh, this is the worst shape and and the worst time i can ever remember uh and most despairing time that i can never remember this country being in the interesting thing about the great depression and i was born in 1929 so i was a kid through much of it is that um we're in an economic depression but you didn't feel that the country was depressed that americans were depressed there was a spirit of we're going to get through this. We're going to, you know, we, we're going to triumph over it. We're going to make it. And there was a lot of optimism. Poverty was everywhere and nobody had anything, but everybody was in common not having anything. I remember years ago talking to the great writer Ralph Ellis, and he said in Oklahoma, where he was brought up, they didn't know they were poor because everybody was poor, and that you know, there was a sense of commonality, and 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 that was and that helped us get through it. Now nobody has anything in common. I mean, there is it's all uh, we, we we we've been digitalized into and fractionated into um, uh, something that calls itself a country. But years ago, I was going to write a play called The Divided States of America. And that's what, I'm sorry I didn't do it because that's what, what we've become. And, and as an artist, uh, are, are you finding uh, like uh, more urgency in, in having a voice and saying something through all the platforms you use? Or are you kind of now just kind of sitting back saying, uh, okay, you know, art has its place, but we got much bigger uh, uh, things at work now. Well, I, you, nothing that I work on turns out to be what I think I'm working on. So it's, uh, 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 and I realize that um, I'm not in control of what I think I'm in control of. And, and as, an, as, as a human, that would give me, put me in a state of panic. As an artist, it makes me feel terrific because I love the, the sense of losing control and my gut leading me in directions I don't know I'm going in. 
and they always tend to be the direction I was supposed to go in, and I didn't know it at the time. So, Jules, um, we're speaking with Jules Pfeiffer. Um, I really want to ask you because some of your work is is really for kids, and I know that that uh, Alex said about writing for small humans, but there is a different tone for something that you write for kids and something you write for adults. How do you walk that line? Because sometimes uh, you'll you'll put out two books, you know, within a very short period of time, and one is like really for adults, and one is not. So well, how do you walk that? The line kind of walks itself. Once I decide uh, what this book is doing and who the readers are, or you know, or, or who the pretend readers are, uh, the, the book, in a sense, takes over. And Joan and I have talked about this endlessly. Um, that that when I'm in charge, nothing good is likely to happen. When the book is in charge, um, the book leads me this way and it leads me that way, and I just follow the book. I mean, I follow where it takes me uh, and try to keep my brain out of it because the brain only gets you into trouble and makes and and leads to mistakes. When you, uh, I learned a lot, I guess, in, in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, working with Second City out in Chicago, but improvisation has always been uh, an innate part of my creative process and maybe the most important part of what makes the work, what made the work fresh at one time and what continues to uh, give it any, any, any innovation it has. And, and Joan, I like, all right, you know, let's bring you into this conversation. You know, you, you're not just, you're not just arm candy here, right? Um, I was going to say that. Uh, you know, so how about your creative process? Like with, with where, how are you reacting to this moment in your own personal journey and history? Huh. <clears throat> well, this moment, <clears throat> it's really bizarre. Because um, it seems like whatever's happening out there has been happening in here. Uh, on, on many different levels, including health levels. So there have been things that, am, that have been happening to me that are not COVID, but maybe are COVID related, but nobody can figure out what they are. And um, I'm just, you know, one more molecule out there, you know, freaking out to uh, the energy of the time. And I think one of the one of the things I personally had to get a handle on was um, not going into hypervigilance. Sure. Because clearly we have no control, right? We have the only thing we have any control over is how we choose to respond to whatever it is that's coming at us. And um, so, you know, I started thinking about. Well, what about what about all these millions of people out there all across the country who maybe don't have those kinds of intellectual resources available to them? And um, how are they responding? And what is it <clears throat> what is it bringing up in them? So I started writing. Um, what began as a book then switched off into a two-person play, and I'm not sure it's that. It may go back to being a book. But essentially, it's, <clears throat> it's a man and a woman who are in the throes of a divorce, 
in the middle of COVID. Wow. I've been there, done that, seen the movie. I know how it ends. You know, and one is locked up in her apartment in New York, and the other is locked up someplace else in some house someplace else. Right, but and you know what, you actually, what you're actually referring to, and I'll go back to what Jules was talking to, about as well, um, about where we are in this moment in history. I, I tend to believe in, in all the work and the writing I've done that really stories can be broken down into um, either, uh, you know, a story driving towards connectivity or a story driving towards isolation. And really, the real human... Um, uh, kind of condition is about the need to connect and feel connected. And we feel so disconnected right now from each other. And, and that's very disorienting. Well, I think we do and we don't. Because um, I think if, if the internet has proved anything, it's that it's where I would say probably 75% of Americans go to connect right now. But is it, but better, is it, a, is it a worth... Or, Sorry, go ahead, John. Well, for better or for worse, and, and including all the misinformation that's out there, and who, who knows which bot you're talking to. Right, you know? but, right. And but that, you know, there's a documentary on Netflix right now uh, called Social Dilemma. I don't know if you had a chance to uh, see it, but, but it, you know, it really does refer to the, uh, the algorithms and how with each user, there's a billion data points that these machines are looking at and only feeding us a little bit more to keep us going. That, that's the opposite of connectivity. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Well, at least, you know, I, I just think that people are trying really hard to connect. And I think that artists are trying really hard to get their work out because art connects us. And whether it's, you know, musicians or artists or, or actors or writers, everyone is, is trying harder during first of all, the, the political climate, and second of all, you know, coronavirus, to get that creativity out there. So, you know, what about you guys and your creative process right now? I mean, I know you're working on something, Joan. Are you working on something as well, Jules? Well, I am doing a um, uh, two, graphic, uh, a two graphic novel book uh, for uh, middle-level readers from about eight or nine to 14, I, you know, it's, it's so arbitrary what you call it, uh, but it's um, Harper's, uh, if, if publishers still exist, Harper's is, is <laughs> Harper's is publishing it. I've finished volume one uh, and I'm at work at volume two. What's the subject? It's, um, well, I sold it on the basis of a, of a treatment that I wrote out and gave it to them. It's, and it's more or less following some of those lines. It's going its own way. And I have no idea where it's going. And I'm having a wonderful time. I mean, it's, um, uh, when we finish talking, I'm going to go back to work today on a new chapter. And, and, um, uh, and I'm in the middle of an attack on, of, uh, of macular degeneration. Uh, so my vision is no longer what it was. And I have to invent the drawing, invent the way I draw as I do the thing. And, and rather than being a limitation, of course it's a limitation. And of course I just as soon not have it. But it's become an extra, another form of play for me. How do I, how do I, all my life, um, one of the things that kept me going as a political and social cartoonist 
uh, and as a playwright with critics, was the, the motto I made up for myself, which was outlast the bastards. And, um, and now I'm in the process of kind of outlasting myself. I mean, how do I? Yes, but, but I would also say, and, and I, I hope I express this right, you know, your cartoons have a certain kind of minimalism that express so much. And so I think that, like, you, you must really enjoy the sandbox that has d rules that you can then poke through. Yes, it, that's exactly it. And it makes it a contest. And, you know, and, um, and at my age, uh, you, there aren't many contests you can be any good at, but this is something I've been working at all my life, and it's second nature. And, I, and, and the obstacles, are, rather than intrusions, turn out to be fun. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, Joan ends up taking care of the serious part of our life. And I, as I said to her yesterday, I'm this is five-year-old at my at my drawing table, going goo ga 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 goo goo. <laughs> you know what? We're going to take a short break. Uh, we're talking with Jules Pfeiffer and Jay Z Holden. This is Bridget Leroy and Alex Sock. And you're listening to Sundays on the East End right here on WLIW FM Long Island's only NPR station. We'll be right back. I'm Meg Noonan, inviting you to join me on 88.3 WLIW-FM for Freeform Radio at its new time every Sunday night from 9 to 11. You'll hear a lively mix of rock in all its glorious subgenres, plus a heavy dose of soul, R&B, and more. So tune in to Freeform Radio, where variety reigns supreme, Sundays at 9 p.m. on 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio, Long Island's only NPR station. The following is a public service announcement from 88.3 WLIW-FM. Founded in 1987, The Retreat is a nonprofit licensed domestic violence agency. It provides a number of services to help break the cycle of family violence. The Retreat offers a secure residence on the east end of Long Island and works with local, state, and national agencies to provide a safe haven, food, clothing, and support. More information at theretreatinc.org or 631-329-4398. Some people you can tell about right away. Most girls I talk to, it's like we're spies from foreign countries and we're speaking in code. Everything means something else. Like I say, would you like to take a walk? And it means something else. And she says, I can. I've got a French test tomorrow. And it means something else. And you say, I'll come over and help you study. And it means something else. You're very sharp. I like that. And that means something else. <laughs> You're too sharp. Does that bother you? It interests me. Is that more code? We'd be good together. I'm dating your best friend. He won't mind. How do you know? I won't tell him. What if I mind? And we're back. Sunday's on the East End. Uh, and we're talking with Jules Pfeiffer and Jay-Z Holden. I have a question on, uh, on something that you just said, Jules. We're Maybe it's more of a statement, but you talked about macular degeneration and how you're having to kind of rethink um, how you work. And that reminded me of James Thurber and other, you know, I guess, cartoonists that that had macular degeneration. And of course, his was uh, he was mortalized by Jack Lemmon in that that movie. And it made me think of Herbie Gardner. It made me think of a lot of people um, who are no longer with us. Did you have any um, idols growing up that you, because I mean, you're so out of the box. Were there cartoonists or, or that, that you kind of based yourself on or just really cool people that you met along the way? No, I'm totally original. 
<laughs> I have never influenced the dogs. No, nobody ever influenced me. I just made myself up. The, 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 uh, you know, everybody, everybody comes out of just about everybody else. And whether they're writers or cartoonists or, 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 uh, uh, or political journalists like Murray Kempton in the, old, in, in the then liberal New York Post or I.F. Stone, uh, the radical uh, left uh, uh, writer of a political weekly, um, or en endless numbers of artists, uh, cartoonists and others who have who've taught me. You know, who've taught me how to think and taught me how to how to draw, then how to draw another way. And and uh, you know, the, the, I was endlessly informed by people who guided me along, even though I didn't know I was being guided. Beginning with the great cartoonist I worked for, Will Eisner, uh, who's who's uh, feature of the spirit was such an influence on on cartoonists back in the nineteen fifties, forties, and fifties. So I've, I've, you know, I owe so much to so many people that um, I'm ever, and I'm ever excited and grateful when I come, when I go through my books and I come upon their work. They, it, it thrills me just as it did when I first discovered them. That's amazing. And, and, and uh, when you are, um, you know, creating a cartoon, uh, one of the things about your work that I, I, I don't know if, if you, you've ever, um, chewed on this before, but, you know, when, when Henry Cartier-Bresson uh, had the decisive moment, you know, in his photography, right. and, and I feel like your work is filled with these decisive moments that, that you somehow are able to manifest. Um, is there a philosophy for you, or is it just more play and then you just find it? That is terrific. Where'd you find this guy? Mm -hmm. uh, Isn't he awesome? <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, and I've talked about this with Joan, that, 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 uh, more and more I discovered belatedly that what's important to me visually um, and in terms of myself and in terms of what I want to give the reader is a sense of immediacy. That um, this, my work is not in the past tense. I want the reader as he or she is reading uh, the graphic novel, which is the form I'm working in most of the time now. Um, a sense that the art is jumping off the page out there, the ink is still wet. Okay. And I realized that throughout my career, although I didn't think of it consciously in this way, that's what I was moving toward, the sense of immediacy, the immediate, it's the connection to the reader, the connection to the uh, psyche of the reader and the emotions of the reader and, the, um, and of whatever age. It doesn't matter because it's that connection that, that humanizes us. It's the sense that somebody's out there to talk to, somebody's out there who understands me. I remember when I started um, reading novels as a kid and, uh, and whatever they, I can't remember what they were now, but suddenly I was in a book that was talking about me by a writer who didn't know me. And what an experience because I felt I wasn't understood at home, but I was understood in this book. Wow. Wow, and 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 then, uh, and just to continue that philosophy though, then you have your words, and your words are so witty, and your words are so like surgically. There, there's a scalpel in in the way that you use language, um. So it's a wonderful counterbalance in 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 my way of looking at it, you know. Um. So what comes first? Well, it, everything comes first. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's such a zen answer, Jules. <laughs> it, it, it's <laughs> it's words and pictures, and, 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 and that's what comics are, that's what cartoons are, and that was the form that, uh, that first informed me when I was three, four years old, and, uh, and informs me to this day. Whatever, you know, when I worked on plays, when I worked on a, a few novels I did, in the background, it was still always the, the, the image and, um, and words that connected to them. They worked together. It's, it's a dance. Now tell, tell me about um, carnal knowledge, because there you have your words with someone else's images, you know, real people instead of your drawings. I mean, what was, what was that like? And of course, working with our beloved uh, late Mike Nichols. Well, it, 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 I was, um, for some years, um, working for Hugh Hefner at Playboy on commission and, and visiting Chicago and staying at the mansion. And uh, oh, we'll get back to that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that might Anyhow, be why your eyesight's going. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and 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 meeting and, and meeting some of the cartoonists who were working for the magazine and having conversations and all of that. And somewhere along the line, uh, I had this insight, and we're going back to the ninth, the nineteen fifties and early sixties. The, the basic insight was that heterosexual men didn't like women, and uh, they, they, they liked screwing. Uh, they liked having sex, and as much as liking sex, they liked every bit as much and maybe even more talking to the guys about having sex. And, you know, and, and so I realized, having had that insight, that I had to write about it and I had to find, find a form for it. And uh, and it seemed immediately because I had been writing plays for just a bit. Uh, I, st I wrote Little Murders, my first play in 1967, and started Carnal Knowledge, which became this play in 1969. And what helped me along with it was that I was in London for some reason or other, and I saw a production that La Laurence Olivier mounted of Strindberg's Dance of Death. And um, and the uh, the rage, the misogyny, the hatred of women that reeked all the way through that uh, suddenly told me what my mission was that that I couldn't do any halfway measures here. I had to go for broke. The characters had to go through this cycle. Uh, of seeming innocence, and at the end, the the end of it, the cynicism. So, but but the point I had to make about uh, heterosexual men and women uh, had to be carried through in, 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 with a set, with a background of uh, anger and rage, uh, which is had I not seen the Olivier production, I don't think I could have come up with that. That's amazing, and and I mean, still such a classic film. Uh, amazing. Hey, I want to, so I want to jump up to, um, had a little to do with that. I'm sorry, say it again. Mr. Nichols had a little to do with that. And, and not a bad cast either. It was, uh, Art Garfunkel and Candy Bergen and, uh, what was that other guy's name? <laughs> Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was an amazing film and still a classic. And, 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 and let me ask you something, uh, yeah. about this misogyny thing. So like, was this, uh, like, I know like when Playboy, uh, kind of started in the fifties and, and even, you know, through Mike Nichols and, and in the seventies, the sexual revolution, the, you know, uh, the ERA is going on. There's all these conversations going on 
about the roles that we're being asked to play in society and, and really um, kind of the vacuum of meaning around those roles. Uh, I'm going to go back to this. Is, this. is this an eternal truth or was that really a moment in time? Uh, the moment of time between men and women goes back <laughs> to that <laughs> mm. Well, speaking of a it, man, it, it's a it's a moment in time time that doesn't stop. <laughs> true, true. It's the eternal moment. If that's like a an oxymoron. But I want to bring Jay Z back into this because you guys uh, just celebrated your fourth wedding anniversary, and you know. What inspired, I mean, I, this is a question for both of you, because, uh, I mean, Jay-Z, I know you're, you're, you're a lot younger than, than 91, than your, your wonderful fella, but, you know, what, what inspired you to get married, I mean, rather than just continuing, you know, living in sin? Oh, well, you know, in a sense, we've been married since the first date. Uh, it's, <laughs> I've never felt more married, more happily married and more with someone I belong with um, in my life. And, and um, so we were just waiting until this happened. I mean, t until we met each other so that we could make official what was always there even before we knew each other. And I understand the wedding was, uh, the theme of the wedding was Jubu, as we say. <laughs> <laughs> part, part, a little bit Jewish and a little bit Buddhist. Tell, tell me about it, Joan. Joan. Well, um, you know, I, I, uh, Peter Matheson was my Zen Buddhist teacher. And at first, when I first heard about him and the Zendo, I was extremely skeptical, especially just having moved out here from New York and having come out here, having worked in the industry, I was, you know, I, I did nothing but work with celebrities. So, um, I to say that I was skeptical was an understatement. I I had no idea whether Peter was the real deal or not. And then this weird thing, this weird opportunity arose where his Roshi arranged what they call a a bearing witness retreat at Auschwitz. Wow. For 10 days. 10 days of sitting on the railroad tracks and meditating at Auschwitz and I thought, well, if there's anything that scares the pants off me more than that, I don't think that I know what it is. And I thought, well, my first attraction was that I was terrified of just the actual doing. And then I thought, but you know, on the other hand, if I wanna find out if Peter Matheson is a real deal, this is, you can't, you cannot be full of and be in a place like Auschwitz <laughs> for 10 days. And, 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 and this is such a simplistic question, but like why Auschwitz? Why bring the meditative uh, uh, practice to those rail, road tracks? Well, because you're bearing witness to what we as human beings are capable of, you know? And when you're there, you're up close and personal. And, you know, all those rooms of eyeglasses and shoes and suitcases that have names and imprints, imprints of the human beings that wore them on them, um, walking through the crematoriums, walking through the children houses, if there could be such a concept as a children's house. You know, I mean, there were just the, 
I think the level of the insanity does not, doesn't make any sense until you're actually there. And you're, you're there, you're in, the, you're in the environment, you're touching it. You see the tooth marks of little children who were hungry, who were eating off the sides of their beds because there wasn't enough food. You know, I mean, there, it was just, I mean, if you want anything to shatter your reality of what we as a culture and we as human beings are, that's the place to go. And, and, and for, um, you, for you, um, how transformative is it? How, what do you, what, how do you have, what do you carry from that experience even now? God, I think it, it, inf it informs everything I do from that moment forward. Um, most of my family was killed, uh, not only at Auschwitz, but at Treblinka. So part of the exercise was as you were sitting on the platform, <clears throat> when you arrived, you were given four sheets of paper with names of people who had died. And at some point you would get called up to sit in this circle and, um, and read your list of names. And if you weren't reading your list of names, you were sitting among all your other Buddhist practitioners listening to the names. And I sitting there, I heard the names of people who I knew were my relatives, who, whose names I hadn't heard mentioned since I was a child. That's, so per that's really profound. It was, it, 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 it was it was so profound on so many different levels. First of all, I felt tied to this place in a very dark way. And it gave me a kind of understanding that this wasn't only, it, this was not only, Germ you know, a problem between Germans and Jews. This is a problem between us. This is the, these are the problems that we as human beings create for one another. We, you know, we make a choice. We choose, you know, Trump has chosen brown people, black people as uh, them. them. Right. right. Well, well it, it you know, back to connectivity or isolation. It's, it's the isolating, instead of feeling a uh, unifying principle, it's, it's us and them, you know. But isn't that like as old as, you know, as long as mammals have been around? I mean, you know, it's eat or be eaten. Yeah. I'm getting very intense here, but uh, doesn't, I, I, I'm such an eternal, you know, optimist. You guys know me. We know each other very well. And listening to you, Joan, it brings tears to my eyes and, you know, opens my heart even more to you. Oh. However, um, we're, we're capable of, of great violence against each other but hopefully we're also capable of great love well that's the whole point that is the whole point because by the fourth day all of a sudden the heaviness and the darkness of Auschwitz falls away and Peter said it happened on his this was his second trip so it happened on the first trip and it happened on the second trip he said by the fourth day something happens and all of a sudden everybody feels light and everybody feels love and everybody oh. feels a sense of connection that they didn't feel 24 hours earlier. And what you leave with is that we are 
so connected that there is no difference, you know, that it is all energy, it is all energetic. And whoever chooses to play that role, the Hitler role, there will always be somebody who's going to play that role. Mel Brooks is pretty good at it. <laughs> and I was going to make a joke too. I was going to say that. So that's your wedding, huh? <laughs> what, what, what is the name of the beautiful town near Auschwitz? Um, you know, about a, two hours away, hour and a half. Krakow. What? Krakow. 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 In uh, Holland, yeah. Um, you get to Auschwitz by way of Krakow, and Krakow is this middle age. Uh, Created in, in the 1300s. You're, you're never, never land. It's the most beautiful. The, the, it's, and preserved, completely yeah. preserved. But it's like those illustrations from fairy tale books that took place in, in Never, Never Land a long time ago. So you. Uh, and usually if you go to Auschwitz, you see Krakow is the place that's closest to it. And you stay in a hotel there and, they, you know, and, and, and everything is lovely and everything is spiritual and everything is sweet. And then you go into this horror. And when I was there, um, and we were there at different times, I had to be helped out physically by the friends I was with. I, I, my legs wouldn't hold me up anymore. Mm. Uh, they had to half carry me out because it is, uh, as Jim pointed out, that the exhibitions are so artfully awful. I mean, uh, eyeglasses of people, you know, thousands of eyeglasses, uh, and in another case, thousands of shoes and shoelaces and all that. And then, and you got the ordinary things that that tell you that people were connected to this and they're all gone. They're all, and not all gone, but they were brutalized and murdered and what people are capable of. And then you go back to Krakow and to this Never Never Land and the awful irony of it and what we're capable of on both levels is shattering. And you, I don't think you ever- well, well, All right, but all right, now I'm gonna try and bring this back to art though, because this this touches for me the very need to express and have expression and 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 the relationship i have with art and mm -hmm. how art is the one uh if you will concept of what mankind is capable of you mean the arts the arts the arts art the art you create the art you absorb um that that rises above um the brutality of reality um, and so I, I tend to, you know, again, I, I know we're, we're having a, a Sunday afternoon conversation. You both have spent your lives as creators. And I, I would imagine that the, the, um, the freedom and joy of creation allows you to rise above to the very best of humanity and not to the very worst. Mm -hmm. That's very, very true. Well, and, 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 and because of, um, what what the essence of creativity is optimism uh you don't start the work unless you feel however difficult however impossible however wrong it goes that you're going to get it right i mean it's a essential um it's a metaphor for life and it uh, and and it's it's what keeps you going uh, i know it's what keeps john going and it keeps me going and 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 gives us whatever residue of hope, perhaps stupid hope, there is left out there. Well, also, I think for me, it was, um, 
one, coming out of that experience, I felt, I felt that my whole purpose had changed and that really now my purpose was to shed light on the darkness, to bring that darkness out of the darkness and into the light so that it can be celebrated, 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 um, whatever, whatever you know, however you want to. Um, but, and I, and that was, I'd never lived my life that way before, you know, and, and of course, and then I decided that Peter was the real deal and he became my teacher and I went in, you know, and I, I started to practice very seriously with him, but, um, but it, it opened up a world that was no longer black and white. We're going to have to take another short break. Uh, we're listening to Jules Pfeiffer and Jay-Z Holden, uh, just profound conversation. And this is uh, Bridget Leroy. And Alex Huckley. Sundays on the East End, right here on WLIW in Southampton. If history has told us anything, the election will be decided by just a few states. We'll look at what's happening on the ground in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and beyond. That's next time on the New Yorker Radio Hour. Sunday night at 11. Hi, this is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Welcome back. Sunday's on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Ockler. And we're talking with a you know, legendary cartoonist, Pulitzer Prize winner, Jules Pfeiffer, and the marvelous writer, Jay-Z Holden. And uh, we, I, I want to really ask you, because um, it's not something you get to ask someone every day, what was it like, Jules, uh, getting awarded the Pulitzer Prize, uh, what was it, in 86, for Pfeiffer? 1986 that I got the Pulitzer. And you asked me what it was like. And well, the the first thing it was like was it, it 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 was a great thrill, and then the irony that always goes with everything that happens to me, uh, my realization when I look back at my output of 1986 that I really didn't have a very good year. Uh, <laughs> that that they waited till I did secondary work to give me the prize. It's it's uh, uh, and. Um, uh, but I was happy to get it anyway. And, um, uh, is that, and, was that kind of the greatest, you know, oh no. rec recognition for you or what, what is the greatest recognition? The, the greatest recognition for me is year after year when I actually deserve the Pulitzer during my most innovative years doing attacking the war in Vietnam and, and, and as the first cartoonist to do that. And, and doing uh, race stuff, which was you know uh, quite radical in in those years, and actually some of it still still remains radical. 
there were no there was no prize and 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 um and a group of cartoonist friends uh, some of whom had won pulitzers um put together a pulitzer prize for me that they made themselves that they <laughs> did the form of the pulitzer and um and they signed it and they gave it to me and and these colleagues young young cartoonists who were uh, influenced by me and had become good friends of mine and i got my colleagues pulitzer and that meant as much or more to me than the actual pulitzer absolutely. Uh, the so my, yeah absolutely all right and now i'm, I'm going to throw a little curveball um is there any cartoon you've ever done that you've regretted doing Oh, I'm sure there are all sorts of ones I've regretted. I don't remember them, but, oh, but that's awesome. That's like saying I, you know, I only read the good reviews. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, I only regret them if they fall flat. I, 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 I can't think of any I've regretted because it had the wrong outlook or the wrong politics. Although they, they well may have been, uh, because uh, I have a very convenient memory at this age. <laughs> And and when and I'm going back to this also process, are you when you write? Do you hover above the world you're creating? Are you in the world? Are you each character? Like, wh where do you where do you go in that process? Uh, I'm probably all of all of the above. Uh, I'm in it. I'm part of it, and I'm also have to be you know outside it to have a perspective on on where I want to go. It's. Um, uh, when I start the cartoons, when I was doing cartoons, they would be, uh, uh, as in improvisational comedy, an opening line and then the second line and the third line. And, and I found that if I let the writing take care of itself, if I let the, the cartoon write itself, uh, it was always in a better place when it got to the end. And sometimes I, sometimes I couldn't come to an end and I put the work away and then a couple of years later, maybe at one point, even 10 years later, I discovered in the, the bottom of a drawer and suddenly I'd have the last line and it would be a 10 year cartoon. That's amazing. <laughs> I just want to shift it now to uh, living on the East End. How long have you um, how long have you both been out here? I moved out here full time in 96, September of 96. Um, my family had a, had built a place in Montauk when I was nine and we commuted from the city but in 96 that was kind of a turning point in my in my life and I decided I I wanted to take a year off out here and here we are ah. <laughs> and what about you Jules well uh, um, it, it is a little story involved um, oh, no really <laughs> <laughs> in um, I'm not sure of the year, but 2002 or 2003, there was a new editor of the Village Voice, and he took me out to lunch, and a cartoon balloon in my head said, "Uh-oh," <laughs> and <laughs> and and he and he told me in the course of the lunch what a lifelong fan of mine he'd been, and there were more uh-ohs, and then he told me he was firing me. Because the money, the money they were paying me, which was I think seventy-five thousand dollars a year at the time, uh, uh, was 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 more than any other person was getting on the paper. Because I'd been on longer than anybody else, and you know, some of it 
had to do with union stuff and automatic raises and all that. And he could hire three reporters for what he paid me. But he wanted to keep running the cartoon and buy it out of syndication for $200 a week or whatever it was. And and uh, so I said no. I was very angry about it. I was, it, it, it's, and, um, uh, and one of the people I spoke to right after it happened, because he was one of my close friends at the time, was the great journalist and writer David Halberstam. And without knowing to have help, David called the Times. And the next day, there was a story on me on the front page of the Metro section, uh, talking about <laughs> how I got fired. And, uh, and I immediately got a call from a, a friend of mine who I didn't see that often, but we, we, we enjoyed each other enormously, Roger Rosenblatt, whose first words to me is, you know, I, I'm not interested in wallowing in your self-pity. I just want to know uh, uh, what your insurance, medical insurance situation was. This was the spring of that year. Uh, and I said, at the end of the year, it's over. And he said, well, I'm starting a writing program out at... at um, uh, at, uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was LIU at the time. Right, right. It, it, was, it was not not Stony Brook yet then, but it was it, it was uh, South the LIU Southampton campus. Right. And and um, and you're going to come out here and you're going to teach, and we're going to and you will be completely covered, you and your family. And um, I said, when do I start? He said, whenever you want. I said, what do I, I you know, I, I, I only taught once before, what do I teach? He said, anything you want. I said, uh, what do I do? He said, you're beginning to bore me, and he hung up. And, <laughs> and because of Roger, I started coming out, and that changed my life. I mean, it, it, Joan was one of my students, and, you know, and uh, although we didn't get together at that time, it was, we knew each other casually for some time, and, and, um, uh, and my life evolved out of that, out of out of getting fired by the voice. So thank you, voice. Yeah, well, I, as a screenwriter, and I mean this like without it sounding funny, I know that I'm doing well when I get fired. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we only have a few minutes left, and I know you have some some new stuff that's uh, recently coming out or being published. Can you uh, elucidate, Jules? Well, I uh, there is a book out now called Smart George, which is a picture book, um, uh, a sequel, a 25-year-old sequel or whatever it is to, to um, no, 19-year-olds. I think the, the original Bark George, which was a picture book for younger readers, um, was published in the 1990s. And for years, I was trying to think of a sequel and didn't come up with it until a couple of years ago. And and with great good fortune, the editor who's been doing all of my children's books since the very first one, The Man in the Ceiling, uh, lives out here in the Hamptons. And um, and working with him, we put together the book, and and, and uh, it's now out. It's the sequel to Smart George, and it's a lot of fun. And the age and and the kind of author that only does that kind of book when I'm working on it. And when I'm doing another kind of work, I'm, I become that. It's, it's, a, it's a, a comedian-like existence. That's a lot of fun. 
It has been uh, just overwhelmingly wonderful to see both of you, Jules Pfeiffer and Jay-Z Holden. We, we can't thank you enough for being on our show. Well, I can't thank you enough for letting us <laughs> talk our heads off. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, Alex, do you want to take yeah. us out? Yeah, I hope everybody enjoyed the conversation. Um, I know uh, among my takeaways uh, uh, today is that uh, you, you, must, you must be playful to create. Yes. And you also, also really, really must uh, have a point of view and be declarative. Um, and that out of pain does come art and beauty. Um, and so, you know, everybody be good this week. Um, everybody, you know, support the post office. Be part of the, um, the reckoning that is going on. And I don't mean W-R-E-C-K. I mean R-E-C-K, reckoning that's going on in, in our world. And, um, you know, be present in your life and, and try and uh, enjoy the week. Everybody be well and stay well. What am I? Some kind of judge or lawyers? <laughs> Maybe not, but I know what law suits me. <sighs> Careful, they don't ruffle me feathers. What am I? I ain't no physicist, but I know what matters. What am I? I'm Popeye, the sailor. And I am what I am, what I am, and I am what I am, and that's all that I am, cause I am what I am. Uh, you got it? I think so, yeah.